The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Dutch political economist, Dr. Kees van der Peil. He taught at the University of Amsterdam and the University of Sussex. He is the author of numerous uh, books, but today we'll be talking about his new absolutely must-read book, States of Emergency, Keeping the Global Population in Check. Welcome, Kees. How is the state of emergency going uh, over there in the Netherlands? Well, it's it's pretty bleak. And... Uh... You may have seen that I, I dedicated the book to the young, you know, because in my view, the, the children and the student age are really bearing the brunt of this. Because for somebody of my age, I now find that two years is nothing. It, it, it was entirely speaking for myself and my wife. Uh, for us, it was an interesting time, politically interesting and so on. But if I see... Uh, What happens to my children and to all the children here and to students? We're looking at uh, at a drama because for them, two years is a lifetime. You know, if you're developing, so in that sense, uh, I'm I'm really very gloomy. And of course, we are um, subject now to the rollout of a, an EU project of a digital identity, and that's what it's all about. The whole medical thing is is just a pretext to get us used to um, taking vaccinations. Um, everything is in a very un incomplete state, so it will probably end in a disaster and chaos anyway. But that in itself is not a not a promising prospect. So, no, Holland is 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 uh, unrecognizable, uh, I would say except uh, if you compare it to the Second World War and the occupation in which the Dutch population already gave a taste of a very peculiar attitude, um, which uh, can only be compared with some Eastern European countries. For instance, we, we uh, well, we I, I wasn't there, of course, but uh, the generation of my parents and grandparents, they, they basically let the the Jews of Holland being abducted, uh, never to return. Whereas the rest of Western Europe um, had, had, on average, had a better attitude, hiding people uh, to a greater degree. It happened here in, in Holland as well. But anyway, that, that, that's the, the comparison that keeps popping up. You know, th th this is the first time since the Second World War that we had a curfew, that we had a lockdown, that we had police brutality to a degree not seen in this country in my whole lifetime. Uh, and uh, everything is being denied. And well, I probably don't, I'm not telling you anything that you didn't know already, but it, it's, it's really, it's grim. And, and it's not grim for me because I'm sitting here and functioning, but it's grim for the children. Uh, I just heard today that neither of my small grandchildren want to go to school any longer because they have to wear masks in the corridor and kids get nervous of that they because they don't know why that would be yeah yeah i agree with you uh, as well and the, i i feel the exact same way the fear is not for myself but for the youth and, and my children i can deal with these things i've lived a, a good enough good, good enough life until now so i don't care about myself and i also think it's a fair comparison what you bring up uh, i've been saying this from the beginning and um i was in central asia in uh, 2020 and i actually had planned to move back to europe to my homeland uh, of croatia but 
as soon as I discovered what was really going on behind the state of emergency in early 2020, I decided to flee back to uh, Latin America, where I thought we would have more freedoms for a bit longer, which has been proving to be the case so far. And I think it's in Mexico. Uh, huh? Yeah, in Mexico. Yeah. The, the, they just activated also vaccine certificates here uh, a week ago. So it's a battle. Uh, 500 people have uh, filed an injunction against the governor because it's anti-constitutional. Um, but also your comparison with uh, World War II, uh, um, there's a Croatian MEP who recently uh, I saw him. Yeah, yelled at Macron uh, and yeah. van der Leyen and comparing what is happening now to the Nazi uh, occupation. So, so you're yeah. not you're not alone. But um, let, let, let's uh, let's get through your book. There's so much here. I highly recommend this book. I think it's on sale, actually, at Clarity Press. 40% off. People can go there now. But uh, there's so much information in it, and it's hard to pick a place to start. But you yeah. po posit that the ruling oligarchy has seized on the virus outbreak, having manufactured it essentially to declare a state of emergency in order to put the brakes on the IT revolution from ushering in a democratic transformation like the printing press did in the Middle Ages. You talk about an internationalized global state dominated by international capital, which has been preparing for economic collapse and 1848 style revolutions. You also call this oligarchy the intelligence IT media block. So maybe to start, you know, people always ask, you know, who are they? And, you know, how would you describe yeah. the, who would you how would you describe this ruling uh, oligarchy? Well, <clears throat> the, the first thing from from a theoretical viewpoint is that that you should never fix it as, a, as an existing entity which doesn't change you know the title of my doctoral dissertation uh, somewhere decades and decades ago had class formation and I, I think when you think of a ruling class and, and any other class in society you always should think of class formation that is uh, within society like like a magnetic field there is there is a there occurs a certain sense of direction in a particular uh, in a particular way. Like when you when you mentioned this triangle that I sketch in the book, you know the intelligence services, IT uh, giants, and and the media, they constitute a core that leads this process of class formation in the current period. That that would be my uh, thesis. And uh, of course, that doesn't exhaust uh, the other components or fractions of, of a ruling class. They, they also must become involved in that process of class formation because they can't take time off and wait for better times or whatever. So even the banks who are now being disciplined, in my view, uh, have, have to be on board and want to be on board. The pharmaceutical companies uh, join the process because almost unexpectedly for them, at least in the longer view, they've become very important. If you, if you think back of the, of the uh, war on terror, for instance, pharmaceutical industry, of course, was somewhere at the end of the line. They, they had no particular role to play. Suddenly they have found themselves in the forefront because of the medical pretext for the whole politics of fear that is being rolled out now is, is of a different kind. So. In that sense, class formation takes a different turn. So, you know, you, you always have to compare it to um, uh, the war on terror, because that, that was basically, uh, at an international level, 
at least, the first time that a, a comprehensive policy, politics of fear was rolled out to, to deal with, yeah, some people say, to deal with the Seattle explosion, you know, with the sudden explosion against uh, extreme free trade that was in the works. Um, but there are many other uh, elements that enter into that. Uh, but in that case, you still had a different, uh, uh, well, not necessarily a triangle, but uh, you, you had a different block of forces leading the process of class formation. And this has now switched to the triangle that I just described and that I explain in the book, and which is pretty self-evident. Of course, if, if, the, if it's an IT revolution, then the, the revolutionaries must include the people who created this IT world, which is basically a state-driven uh, state invention process, uh, which was then privatized uh, after 1990, because after 1990, uh, capital no longer tolerated any sort of public constraint imposed on it. Uh, so in that sense, after, 90, after the collapse of the whole Soviet bloc in the state socialist episode, um, Everything has to be uh, has to be privatized by the logic of the system, and and it's that process which created the oligarchy in its present form. But we shouldn't forget that even in the crisis itself, so in the crisis of the uh, of the COVID uh, circus, the oligarchy is is condensing to an almost unbelievable degree. Uh, I've heard things like. Uh, a billion a day that's being earned extra by, by the Elon Musk and Amazon boss and, and Gates and, and so on. But that, that's the anecdotal side of it. Uh, but it's an oligarchy in, in, a, in an unprecedented sense. Uh, at no point in history, except in ancient empires, for instance, has there been a, a ruling group which is so tightly, uh, which is so small. Uh, compared to the rest of society and the whole middle class, well, people like myself, you know, the sort of pity bourgeois academics and so on, they're being expropriated. Very, you f you feel that, you know, your your uh, savings are going. And I'm, I mean, I'm not wailing here about my material position, but just to indicate that even classes that would normally be considered as political supports for the the upper ruling class. Are, are being sacrificed to its enrichment, which, which is not a matter of ill will on the part of the top people. It's simply how the system operates, you know, concentration and centralization is the name of the game. And, and that's what's happening now, except it's going into overdrive in, in, in extreme and absurd forms. And, and, and that also tells you that this process can't go on for much longer. Yeah, and speak, speaking of the inflation, you know, and such, we, we can also feel it here uh, in Mexico. I feel, I, I feel it. I guess uh, so, yeah. Yeah, as well. It's truly global um, it, across the board. And um, you, you also mentioned some of the people that all of us are familiar with uh, in your book, such as, you know, the Bilderberg Group, the uh, Trilateral Commission, now the, another manifestation, the World Economic Forum. Uh, all, all of these groups were also mentioned by my recent uh uh, guest and my former professor Alfred Desayas, UN special reporter. He also yeah. he, he he briefly mentions them in his book, Building a Just World Order, also from Clarity Press. But um, you know, you mentioned the financial crisis. You know, we we have the two thousand and eight global financial crisis. 
where there was this huge discontent uh, of the masses manifesting itself. You know, we've had the Arab Spring, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the Yellow Vests, Brexit, Trump, uh, and so on. And, you know, all of a sudden, magically, the UN declares uh, a pandemic, right? And, you know, on my podcast, you know, one, one of my missions has always been to kind of filter through the nonsense and kind of, you know, get to the point. I, I hate beating uh, around the bush. And uh, you do a great job with your, with your book. You conclude that the virus crisis is a fraud. It's a cover for a political seizure of power. I don't want to spend so much time on the medical aspects because the, most of the people listening to this are familiar with it. They can, they should get your book and, and look at those details. We know the masks don't work and the PCR tests are fraudulent. So I want to dig deeper behind this political seizure of power and why it's the case. You say that there is no proportionality between the actual medical emergency and the measures applied. Um, that decades ago, the elite foresaw the end of this economic system, which would result in 1848-style revolutions and general popular revolt. You write that the IT revolution has given them the ability to evade a physical war against the population via the alternative of permanent surveillance and information warfare. The pan this panopticon is the model for our form of late capitalism, the sur surveillance society organized and operated by the IT industry. So basically, you see as the main driver of this COVID state of emergency, the threats of a new 1848. So can you kind of tell us, you know, what, what's really going on here well <clears throat> basically you can go back to um, to the war on terror but, but before that uh, I would always think of the 1970s in Italy and, and other European countries where you had uh, terror scares and and well not just scares but but uh, you know real uh, atrocities and uh, as always the Italians have been very good in uh, political analysis. Why that is, I, I don't have an immediate uh, explanation. Uh, but uh, in in Italy, I, I have several books by Italians about the 1970s uh, strategy of tension, which which was the U.S., German, Israeli uh, policy of preventing communists from uh, becoming part of the governing coalition or the governing bloc in Italy. And uh, they succeeded in, well, not only uh, preventing that uh, the so-called historic compromise between Christian democracy and communism, but they also uh, discovered something which is uh, again in operation today. And that is that a politics of fear leads uh, a population that basically is fed up with uh, the people it, it's being governed by uh, to actually draw closer to that government. Because basically the government tells the population, you may hate us as much as you like, but the only people who can protect you against uh, bombs is us. So you better join us. And uh, you, you can transpose that straight to the present situation. Uh, again, the governments, but now all of all over the world, practically speaking, are saying to the population, maybe you hate us, maybe you're d deeply dissatisfied about inequalities that you are victimized by, but the only people who can protect you against this terrible virus is us and, and the medical authorities. And, and that's, a, that's a lesson of 
political science, you know, in the 90, it was really discovered in the 1970s, as far as I can see. And it evolved in several European countries. In Germany, you had your own terror episode. And and it, with the war on terror, it became universalized. So the United States took the lead in this, in this whole process. And um, we're now living uh, through another episode of the uh, politics of fear. But at the same time, we shouldn't... Uh, uh, accept, or we shouldn't think that the um, the medical phase that we're now in of the, of the uh, which is a pretext for the seizure of power should therefore always remain a, a, a psychological war against the population. Um, what is happening today in on the border with Russia in Ukraine uh, may well be an option. I mean. Again, these options are also objective. You know, there's not some Dr. Evil who's sitting somewhere uh, with his little pussycat on, on his, uh, in his lap uh, directing it all. I mean, these are, these are processes which have a, a, a dynamic of their own and, and which therefore produce contradictions in the sense that, um, you know, the, the, the forces that are associated with what uh, Foucault calls uh, the biopolitical complex, uh, may not like at all what is happening uh, on the Ukrainian-Russian uh, border. But of course, the arms industries will press in that direction, irrespective of the longer term, broader class interest <coughs> of the entire ruling stratum in, in the West. So. And that's contradictory because it may well be that the, a, an open fight on the Ukrainian-Russian border might lead to a complete unraveling of the whole COVID process. But it can also be, you can also interpret it as a systemic transition which maintains the idea of, of a politics of fear, except it switches it to a, a different uh, terrain. It will therefore entail... Uh, restructuring of the leading uh, groups, uh, no longer, uh, you know, the media and the uh, IT giants, first of all, but, but mainly, you know, well, they, they will be uh, related to them, but then in the more in the defense field. I'm, I'm just mentioning it to, to indicate that once you, once you allow an unstable situation to develop, the instability itself takes over to an extent that prevents any conspiratorial policy on the part of the ruling class from really reaching its 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 goals. Uh, so we are we are already seeing that the medical pretext is coming apart. Uh, we are seeing that, at least that's my claim, that the the technical ability to uh, inject uh, all sort of uh, nano beacons into people is is completely immature. I mean that doesn't exist. I mean it's it's amazing what I've seen on film myself. What is already contained in these uh, so-called vaccines, but even so, uh, it's not a hermetic system uh, yet able to be imposed on, on the population as a whole. Large parts of the population get salt water injected simply because they need control groups 
in in the same population that they are injecting with the very dangerous uh, substances. So uh, the the point is that uh, the politics of fear is is a is itself a crisis phenomenon. That is, it's open ended. It's unclear where it will end. But we can say that every separate chapter of the politics of fear, whether it was terrorism or Putin is coming or uh, the fires, etc., also has its own internal contradictions, which prevent it from reaching a logical conclusion. Look at look at what what happened, what what came out of the war on terror. Was terror defeated? No, of course not. The Middle East was thrown thrown into chaos, and even far more than the, just the Middle East, because as far as uh, China, Central Asia, and you name it, all these all these areas are now in, in a deep, deep crisis. And sometimes I think under the present system, they won't come out of it any longer. Well, I, you, you will be in a better position to explain what's happening in Latin America, but I, I can't believe, I can't imagine that there, uh, the, the future is, uh, is bright. Uh, in the, in the current circumstances, because once your economic system is failing, and that and that's the you know the tank tracks below the whole thing, they they must keep uh, the machine rolling. And once your economic system is failing, and it failed definitively in two thousand eight, although it took another decade before that became fully clear to all concerned, then anything can happen every day, and and. And yet the old system produced, uh, for instance, an over-armament of the world to such a degree that that you only have to strike a match here or there and you have a full-scale, uh, highly destructive type of war that can, you know, with nuclear weapons around, can end anywhere. You mentioned the, the medical dictatorship, basically, and I often think of all of the people around me, let's say, you know, the masses, and they really haven't a clue. They think they're, they're still in a democracy, but, you know, you discuss the, the biosecurity state, biopolitics, uh, biosafety, which you also describe having a, a religious element. This is what they're trying to put us into, you know, some also related to technocracy, you cite Catherine Austin Fitz in describing epidemics as having become the medical variant of false flag false, opera- flags, yeah, false yeah. flag operations, which is what I have been saying since the beginning, describing COVID oh. as. And um, could you tell us a little bit more of, you know, what is this biopolitics, biosecurity state that they want to, to, to put us into? Yeah, well, Humanity is at, at the crossroads. One of we may assume the last book by uh, James Lovelock, uh, the famous uh, natural scientist and inventor, who became famous with his Gaia hypothesis. Uh, you know, of the self self sustaining Earth, Earth as a quasi a natural uh, body which which reacts as an organism. He wrote a, a final book, which is called the Nova Scene. And, and by Nova Scene, he means a sort of ultimate, uh, like the Pleistocene or the Holocene, you know, a, a, a geophysical era in which humanity is, is tied to artificial intelligence. And he says, basically, if we can avoid 
uh, a, a comet uh, crashing into the Earth or uh, a nuclear war, we, we can project hundreds of years uh, or, or more of uh, human existence continuing with the help of artificial intelligence and even colonizing large parts of the universe. Now, it's, it's that, that sort of idea, which was also propounded by, by others, um, that, that has somehow captivated some of the leading lights of the capitalist class, like, like Eric Schmidt of Google and, and certain f- uh, futuristic thinkers. And, and they, they have uh, assumed that with technology progressing so fast and artificial intelligence uh, progressing so fast, for instance, my book was translated also by a machine translation into German and French, and these are both languages that I can read well. And I really, I, I read it with open mouth. How, what a quality translation that was just from a, from a computer. So, and, and that's entirely based on artificial intelligence because it relies on, on the highlights of world literature in these various languages. So, and it does that all in a split second. Now, that, that, that didn't exist with, at this level of quality five years ago. And now it's, uh, you know, it's for free. So, uh, artificial intelligence develops very fast. And some of these strategies of the, of the ruling class who are really strategies of the ruling class in the sense that they, they think for it, you know, mind you that, that in every epoch of history, the ruling class was, was a pretty stupid bunch. They were good at what they were supposed to do, whether it was managing large estates for export crops or whatever to big industry or now banking or you name it. But they're not very smart in the sense of understanding what, what the historical conjuncture is that they are operating in, what the, what the challenges are that they have to face. So every epoch of history ha- has a, a ruling class in the sense that a class that's, be, that's forming, etc. But one part of the formation of, of, a, of such a ruling class or ruling block is the presence of so-called organic intellectuals, uh, you know, in, in the old Roman days. Uh, the patricians uh, also apparently were a pretty stupid bunch, but they had Cicero who thought for them, who spoke for them. Locke spoke for the English uh, liberals in the 17th century. And in the same way, these uh, people like uh, Google, uh, uh, Eric Schmidt of Google and Ray Kurzweil and all these other people th- uh, conceive of themselves also as leading uh, thinkers. Uh, they call themselves thinkers, and and they think for the larger mass of even for the oligarchy. Not all of the oligarchs are equally adroit at at uh, maneuvering in in politically in the situation that they're facing now. So they rely on these people, and in the current situation, uh, a number of thinkers in that sense, so organic intellectuals of the information revolution have thought uh, that we are already entering the era where artificial intelligence can take over. And they have realized that for the ruling class, this is a unique moment that will not recur if you don't grasp it now. So you will have to deploy the whole AI uh, infrastructure 
develop it very fast and make sure that before people begin to realize that you might be able to do most fantastic things, uh, you know, things that realize humanity in a much deeper sense, uh, open up fantastic vistas of, uh, of, the, of human development. Of course, I'm overdoing it a little bit. Uh, before that can happen, uh, we must make sure that people walk in step and that, that there's no uncontrollable uh, thing like the Arab Spring, for instance, which still had to be repressed by a recurrence of uh, dictatorship, by, by wars and NATO intervention, you name it. Um, and and that's that's the well I would the more historical philosophical background of what we are experiencing now. There was an urgency to intervene in a historic process. Some of the people thought of themselves as being able to understand the consequences of what was at stake and and what was possible. The only problem is that they came up with solutions for which are technically not yet feasible, but most importantly, which are unacceptable to uh, parts of society that are too large, too independent-minded, too resilient to submit. And, and that's, well, I can see that in, in Europe very clearly, that uh, people are not inclined here, at least, let's say, 20 to 40% of the population of every European country is not inclined to follow any such futuristic uh, project if it is based on a complete uh, denial of, of fundamental rights and freedoms that people were used to. You know, in, in, in China and, and certain other Asian countries, more is possible in this respect because people were used for generations of you know, not going too far in um, questioning the legitimacy of uh, power. But here in Europe, there's a, well, even in a country like uh, my own here in Holland, uh, I, I said some nasty things first, but uh, basically one of the good sides of the Dutch is that they are very disobedient people. So ultimately they won't, they won't obey even the people who, who now were tricked into having uh, the vaccination uh, are now coming uh, around and saying, well, we, we now are being asked to do a booster shot and we don't want to become a sort of uh, target for pharmaceutical industry. These are ideas now that are beginning to brew among the silent majority that at first was willing to submit to government dictates. So your book, yeah, your book gives me hope uh, in, in the sense that you, you're, you're saying that they don't quite yet, all of this technology hasn't quite yet uh, come together to do what they really exactly. wa want exactly. to do. So th that's, that's, that's hopeful. Um, and, you, you know, you also write about the IT revolution and how it essentially comes from, you know, the military, DARPA. Uh, Pentagon, pretty much everything we use today, hardware and software. Uh, I mean, I was surprised you pointed out how even, you know, LCD screens that we're using right now and touch screens are products yeah. of military uh, yeah. research. Nobody thinks about this and they've taken all of their little gadgets and software yeah. for, for granted. And they view this technology as benign, but really we're dealing with like weapon systems. And it seems these systems are now being targeted uh, at us by the ruling 
uh, oligarchy. Um, something uh, interesting you also talk about are uh, politics, you know, that how the left and right lines have, have blurred, the oligarchy has broadened uh, the center and situated itself there, that there's little difference today between, you know, Democrat, Republican, except that perhaps the Democratic, Democratic Party, at least in the U.S., seems to be currently the de facto home uh, of the uh, oligarchy. And, you know, you say the target of state power is the progressive movement. Um, I, I personally also see, you know, a hard attack on conservatives with this deplatforming. De They're canceling people's bank accounts, putting them on no-fly lists and so on. Yeah. Could, could you speak about how the elites have kind of reorganized power and party lines? And this is a global trend, like in, in, in many countries. Yeah, yeah. Well, Again, we, we shouldn't think of the elites here as, as a force which is able to direct this, like, like a film director. Um, I mean, the fact, that, the fact that the left has, has been incorporated into the broad center is uh, basically something that has been autonomously achieved by the formerly left forces, so by, by the groups that emerged from the industrial labor movement, um, which has allowed itself to um, remain, well, no, which has remained without an answer to the relocation of, of actual industry to Asia or, or wherever. So I live in a country which has been de-industrialized. France is being de-industrialized. You can't believe it. This was one of the industrial world leaders and and now there's less and less uh, any meaningful work uh, being done there uh, in that respect um so so the left lost its lost its base but uh, instead of reflecting on that process and adjusting their view of how a society could be transformed to a more just uh, yeah what i would call a socialist society but based on the inform information revolution, no longer on the industrial revolution. Um, they didn't do that. They, they simply let the process go and, uh, you know, they, they basically were uh, corrupted by the political process itself. I, I always think that uh, just as capitalism will disappear as, a, as an economic system, along with it will uh, disappear the political uh, parliamentary representative system uh, operated by professional politicians, you know, who are who, whose mandates are renewed by elections and so on. Uh, so that 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 illustrates that the ruling class didn't have to do anything to uh, get the left to forget about its own history and its prospects and whatever, they did that themselves. It was largely part of unreflected uh, objective processes of deindustrialization and not doing anything about it, not thinking about it. what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us as, as a political tradition? How do we uh, renovate and rejuvenate our our stake in this whole process, in the whole process of social development. Now, the center was always the center. It's still the center, of course, except that it moved to the right. And by right, I mean authoritarian politics, uh, inequality politics, um, destroying the environment, not so much by CO2 or something, but by sheer pollution, uh, cutting trees. We, we now are, are 
energy sources are now basically trees cut from North America, from Russia, from the Baltic countries, etc. Every day, enormous ships arrive here in uh, Amsterdam and Rotterdam with wood chips, uh, which contain not just the trees, but also all the life that was uh, happening in between these trees, so to speak. So now these ecological disasters are going on in all as part of a the unraveling of a, of a functioning uh, economic system. Um, well, I think, uh, well, <laughs> I, I've lost, I've lost where we were now. Yeah. I was just going to say, well, that other guests of mine have echoed as well, the same sentiments where you mentioned if when capitalism goes, I guess it's going, um, democracy and, you know, will go as well. And that we're entering into a period of, well, it's still yet to be defined, but authoritarian period where there isn't democracy, technocracy, biopolitics, or maybe a, a, a more optimistic future that's up to, to us to, to fight for. Um, there, there's a fascinating tidbit in your book about how, quote, shortly after taking office, Kofi Annan signed an agreement with the World Economic Forum in Davos linking the UN Secretariat to an electronic communication system, welcome, yeah. that put him and his staff in direct contact with a number of yeah. government leaders uh, and with the directors of the World Bank and other international financial institutions, and that effectively the UN system was became subordinated to the Western Bloc and transnational uh, corporations, end quote. And you, know, you describe what I call COVID-1984 as a global project of which the individual states are mostly the relays um, and Cobra Commander Klaus Schwab, as I call him, as the secretary of the project or a series of overlapping projects. It's, it's pretty mind boggling the coordination that they have at the global scale to carry out what they've been carrying out over the last two years uh, to, to be able to kind of manage and impose their, try to impose their wills upon virtually, you know, all nation states. Uh, we've seen different states here in Mexico from the local level because our president AMLO, at least from the federal level, it has not been possible to implement a lot of these policies, but they've gone, you know, to mayors and, and governors, gotten to them somehow. And, you know, one state has tried to implement these biosecurity policies and has failed. Another has tried and they've been having some success and it's just this back and forth you know two steps forward one step back uh, could you comment you know a bit of, about the mechanisms of how they're able to do this globally what they've done so far yeah well you mentioned uh, Kofi Annan and the, and the UN don't forget that this was already in the 1980s uh, so uh, the attack on the UN system uh, as, a, as the potential grid on which uh, an alternative world economy might have been built uh, occurred under Thatcher and Reagan. So there, there's a permanent uh, struggle going on, on on the international level in which the forces of internationalization and international organization are battling uh, over whether they will be... Um, uh, uh, whether they will articulate the aspirations of large parts of the world population or whether they will impose authority on that population. So in that sense, the mechanism and a sort of global class struggle, if you call it like that, 
uh, is already dates back to the Reagan and Thatcher revolution. You know, neoliberalism was a flight forward of out of the class compromises of the post-war period, uh, uh, and in the process. Uh, made the capitalist system system into a world system, but also it made it much more fragile and dependent on any interruption of long product chains on sources of raw materials and so on and so forth. So um, in 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 one in one respect the 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 COVID scenario uh, which can be traced back to somewhere around 2000 when the first uh, training exercises were being held about bioterrorism, although n nothing in the in the way of bioterrorism had ever happened, uh, and as far as I know, didn't happen since then either. Except that we're now, of course, experiencing a bioterrorist episode in which governments are deeply involved. But um, although the, on the one hand the bioterrorism uh, scenario from two thousand looks fantastically uh, prepared on the one hand and on the other um, unique because there was nothing like it in, in previous decades. Many episodes, like for instance the attack on the United Nations, already show that um, the struggle to gain hold, to gain control of the levers of world government, uh, of global governance, had already been initiated in the 1980s and 90s and so on. And even the, the, the attack on state socialism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union can be understood as uh, in light of the streamlining of the uh, uh, lines of communication between certain centers and, and here Bilderberg and Trilateral Commission and the, the group of 30 and, and so on and so forth are important, not as, uh, you know, the seats of uh, Dr. Evil, but as coordination centers, as nerve centers where a lot of ideas about how to go forward come together and are being negotiated among different interests involved given articulate expression also by these organic intellectuals you know at the, they are people are invited to come and speak at Bilderberg or uh, and 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 also the Bilderberg group itself and the trilateral commission operate and the world economic forum even far more in a in a more sophisticated and more expressly developed way they themselves operate as in as collective organic intellectuals, you know, they, they are think tanks in which ideas are being produced. I mean, I've been 50 years in academia, and, and if you promise not to tell anyone, most of the people that I met were really stupid, whereas compared normal people that I meet, I, I hardly ever meet stupid people, but in academia, you meet many of them. And yet the, the ruling class has at its disposal uh, an apparatus so vast that even the stupidity of so many academics uh, is turned into uh, yeah, an a process of accumulation of extremely sophisticated thought. And you would, you would yeah, it's a, it's a very instructive experience actually, because it, it, you would be amazed where these smart thoughts and these deep insights come from if you ever meet one of the people who are 
deeply involved in, in, in the prestigious institutions. I, I won't mention my own experiences here, but they are really interesting in that respect. There are very few, well, anyway, let me put it this way. The, the ideas that the ruling class have to try and impose worldwide regulatory processes, so policies that will work to streamline and to, to discipline um, entire continents, go back decades, they, 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 and they have uh, behind them uh, a vast uh, collection of, of entire libraries of, of insights and empirical uh, results of how people react to this, how people react to that. In my book, I give, for instance, the example of this French sociologist of health, uh, Patrick Zilberman, who, who studied how people experience lockdowns. And if you, if you just read that book, you understand this is, this is a goldmine for anyone who wants to impose a lockdown because it's all there. And it turns out that it indeed worked out broadly uh, along the lines that he predicted on the basis of the SARS-1 episode in 2003. The one uncertainty that all ruling class projects stumble on is the willingness of a population uh, to be uh, disciplined uh, by such a project. And uh, th uh, that uh, justifies my remark just now that uh, academics are often stupid, whereas the normal people often, because they rely much more on their intuition and on the sense of, is this a right thing to happen or not, rather than on abstruse theories and, you know, fashionable um, well, fashions, intellectual fashions. Yeah, I, I, I would I, I would confirm that because I've worked in education and as as an adjunct professor, and it's exactly uh, as you describe. And you also mentioned uh, in your book how the urbanites, the urban intellectual elites, uh, are kind of like the workforce for the oligarchy, which explains why they are primarily the ones who are buying the official narrative. Oh, yeah. um, and while the working class is much more skeptical uh, of the narrative. Exactly. And I can't believe how so many people are buying into the narrative. But yeah, that, that's what you touch on in the book. Yeah, but don't, for, don't forget that uh, once, once um, I mean, when, when, the, when we still had an industrial working class, which was broadly committed to socialist ideals, etc., these, these uh, ideological convictions didn't arise from inside the, the people themselves. I mean, they simply listened to their leaders who gave them a plausible uh, story about where we might be heading, why it would be good for us, and so on and so forth. Today, um, if, if our ministers or, or parliamentarians are meeting in The Hague, there are demonstrators who shout at them that they are satanists or that they are uh, pedophiles and, and, and so on and so forth. And there are a few, uh, uh, actually. But um, if in the 1920s or 30s or, or the late 19th century, people wouldn't have had organizations guiding them, in, guiding their thinking in a, in a progressive direction, they would also have been shouting all kinds of abuse 
without precisely knowing why they were using these terms and, and so on and so forth. So what, what we're seeing now in the anomie, in, in the loss of, of uh, political orientation among so many people, and that in turn makes them vulnerable to government policies like politics of fear in the name of a virus, that their, their organizations have, have disappeared. You know, they, they no longer function as, as a, a vanguard or, or support institutions to give people a sense of what sort of world they are living in and what, what might it be in it for them uh, in terms of improvement of their faith and a better future for their kids and you name it. Yeah, and I, you know, I would just mention as well. I, I forgot to mention you talked about how uh, academics are not so smart, and one of the reasons that I started this podcast many years ago was because while I was working, you know, at, at university, there were a few of my colleagues willing to talk about these subjects that I'm yeah. passionate about, and so I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast and talk to intellectuals uh, such as yourself, and and it grew. And I also wanted to mention that you know you have a really long section uh, on the book that's. That's very valuable on the bio warfare aspect. Uh, I was going to mention yeah. that you actually referenced multiple times the, the interview that I did with uh, Francis Boyle back in January yeah. of 2020, okay. um, and also you you know you you identify. Uh, it gives a lot of detail of, of the the backstory of the 20 years uh, of these pandemic simulations, and you identify the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which was formed yeah. in 2019, and I've read that. Um, like in 20 yeah in 2020 i read that do document so people should go check that out you talk about the rockefeller lockstep um uh, agenda and um i remember in march of 2020 i had been interviewed by the popular channel spiro skuras uh who has yeah, since yeah, yeah he's, he's uh, since I've seen him. Yeah. yeah he's since been deplatformed unfortunately multiple times over and placed into a virtual ghetto uh he he didn't he, he didn't feel comfortable i guess he doesn't do interviews for now anymore but he asked me back in March of 2020 what was my assessment of what was going on, and I said that it was about global governance, um, world government, and that they wanted to create an algocracy to rule us by algorithms. Uh, and you write about that in your book, that many are seeking to have COVID-19 serve the political interests of a global governance uh, yeah. proje project. Uh, one of the biggest questions we all have, and you touch on it in the book, is um, that one of the most uncertain factors in the COVID crisis is the relationship between the West and the US uh, in particular and China, that you talk about how both Russia and China have submitted to global governance through their membership in the UN and its organizations. Uh, and what has occurred is the internationalization of the state where sovereignty has transferred to the international level from which policy is handed back down to national governments. Um, and then you, you discuss, you know, would China really accept to settle for for participating with the west in an ultra imperialism when the west is evidently declining and plagued by um yeah. disintegration uh, on the one hand you say the answer is yes you know namely the issue of establishing an authoritarian state in which the formerly liberal homelands of capitalism adapt to the chinese model by uh, simultaneous coups um where you leave the inequality untouched uh, but then we also have a situation where the U.S. Uh, are between, you know, it's between war, as you mentioned earlier, and cooperative ultra imperialism. So yeah. both both options uh, for me are horrific uh, because it was yeah. also with the latter, 
the whole world would kind of become edged towards totalitarianism. Could you try to kind of tell us about this U.S.-China relationship in this state yeah. of emergency? Well, I, I think uh, the more the more I think about it, the the more I think we we um, we tend to look at China still too much through the communist lens to to think that that. You know, I, I have many old friends from my uh, my own Communist Party days who still don't want to hear anything bad about China. They they think it's all uh, you know uh, Cold War uh, invective, etc. But if you if you look at uh, the chronology of how this crisis came about, um, and you then go, reflect back on um, the number of uh, instances of labor unrest in China itself. M many people think of uh, China as a sort of Japanese super factory where everybody's happily uh, running around in, in clean coveralls and so on, but that's not true. Th there's a constant process, again, of class formation in the sense that a new working class is being uh, formed from people who will come straight from the land. That process is still not exhausted. And it, it's a, a general known fact of sociology that uh, the first the first generation of workers is always the most radical because they're not used to the rhythms of of, uh, of uh, long working days and uh, forms of obedience that they were unused to. Uh, and if you then look at the statistics of uh, labor incidents in in China, that runs into the thousands each year. So for the Chinese ruling class, uh, with its president for life now at its head, um, you know, if, if the Communist Party in China convenes, there's this long, li endless line of black limousines bringing the billionaires that are a member of the party uh, to the conference hall. Um, but for the Chinese ruling class, um, the threat of the 1848 that I borrow from uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski as, as a sort of you know, a, a, a vision of danger in the near future. Um, for the Chinese ruling class, that's a, something very close to home. They're not a sort of industrial superpower smiling at, at the labor unrest and the resistance to, against inequality in the West. They themselves are challenged by um, popular unrest. And it's the same in Vietnam. It's the same in Indonesia, which is also under a slightly different system, operating uh, this sort of runaway uh, intensive industrialization, destroying its entire natural habitat and so on and so forth. So um, China, in that sense, is, is a very important player in the internationalization of the state. Uh, much more so than Russia. Also, uh, we shouldn't we should realize that a country as vast as China or Russia or India is never a single entity. I mean, these are in themselves are are complexes of social forces boiling with with the difference of interests, with all kind of struggles and so on. So, the the people who are uh, you mentioned this global. Uh, preparedness monitoring board, the Chinese, uh, what is he, head of the Chinese Medical uh, Association, Dr. Gao, 
who is there doesn't speak for China as a whole. There will be there will be large and powerful groups in China itself. You know, it, it, you can read the. Uh, I read the books of uh, Wang Hui, the uh, bit of a, an outsider Chinese intellectual. Very interesting book uh, about the history of China and the history of Chinese thought, etc. And he emphasizes that that what we see as as popular uh, uprisings, like in 1989, you know, the Tiananmen uh, uprising, were also, uh, of course, they they're not. Uh, something else, uh, but were also uh, struggles in within the the ruling elite in in China between groups that wanted to go uh, for a full neoliberal makeover of China and groups that wanted to retain uh, a veto or at least a, a substantial power for the state class or the class that isn't in on top because of its private property, but, but that is on top on account of its hold of the state apparatus, which is something that you see in Iran, that you see in Russia, and that, of course, has a long prehistory to it, as, as I call it, the contender state, you know, a state which from, to, from the top down tries to replicate what a more powerful liberal West has already achieved at that point. And and today, China and Russia still retain many characteristics of that contender state model, although at the same time, as you said, uh, they are also part of the internationalized state. I mean, in the monitor, in the uh, global preparedness, etc. board, uh, there was also the Russian Minister of Health. Of course, uh, people, people who have closely looked at, uh, for instance, the interlocking directorates among corporations, you know, and who really know who is on that board and rather than just drawing the lines and counting them, uh, very often say, ah, but uh, if you, you take this or that man or woman and you forget that he was never there, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And it might well be that in the uh, global preparedness monitoring board, for instance, the Russian minister of health hardly played a role, for instance. That, that would be my personal hypothesis before I hear from somebody who really knows about it, uh, whether that was true or not. But in that light, you have to look at these things. The impetus for uh, a round of disciplining of the world population comes from the West. Um, but China uh, is another major force in the process, and if you look at the chronology, you might even say that they had a more urgent need now to already start the process. But but that is something that I simply don't have the knowledge to to judge. But I wouldn't be surprised if if, as I say, you know, after the meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2020, uh, Tedros of the World Health Organization traveled to China. First of all, now that was not for medical reasons. There were 10 cases or something, uh, but simply to confer uh, on the basis of what he had been listening to at the Davos meeting, to confer with China, what, what would their position be? And, and then you got a Wuhan lockdown. Now, every veterinarian will tell you that there's no point in lockdowns to root out to, to get to a zero COVID situation because animals also store this, this virus. They, they allow it to reproduce. 
So you would have to kill all the cats and the dogs. And actually, they they inoculated the, the animals in the London Zoo. Uh, have you seen that? No, with Images COVID? Images of, of lions and, and a, a rhino and what a, a kangaroo all being inoculated with Pfizer and Moderna serums. In itself, a, lot, a, a correct step if you want to get at zero COVID, but that's simply impossible anyway. The, you, the, you can root out smallpox, but you can't root out a respiratory virus. They're everywhere and everywhere. And actually, you are in a much better health if you are constantly exposed to them because then your immune system uh, remains in top shape. Whereas now what we're seeing here in Holland and I guess everywhere else is that because of the distancing and, and the mouth caps and so on, there are nastier forms of uh, flu and, and very serious uh, Ryan. Uh, the, the, yeah, they tell us natural immunity uh, doesn't exist, but uh, this kind of makes me think, I, I think you cite Orwell's 1984 in your book where yeah. Orwell writes in the past ruling groups of all countries did fight against one another in our own day they are not fighting against one another uh, at all the war is waged by each ruling group against its own subjects yeah. and the object of the war is to keep the structure of society uh, intact. intact for me that seems like what's happening now and you beg the question are we witnessing the consolidation of a universal oligarchic collectivism, as Orwell used the term, a truce between ruling classes holding their own populations yeah. captive in the nominal state of war. So yeah. is, is that what you think could be going on? Well, certainly what they're trying. No, because while, while you're saying is, I, I become more optimistic in the sense that I, I, I almost have to laugh because I realize it's, it doesn't stand a chance. A year ago, it did. But now, but don't forget that one thing I mentioned in the book that is that in January 2021, the Financial Times on its front page reported that the Edelman uh, PR firm, which was closely involved in the preparation of the whole pandemic, uh, as I mean, the pandemic as, as a political project, came to the conclusion that the project to create a shock that everybody would have been paralyzed by and then be inoculated and so on and so forth, that that chance had passed and that the project had failed. Now, if a, if a company like that, which is so deeply involved uh, in uh, the whole process of setting it up, of, of writing the scenario, so to speak, they, they really were a major force. If they to the, come to the conclusion after almost a year, it has failed, uh, we we should feel optimistic. That doesn't mean that that what is happening now to children and to young people, but also to old people dying in complete solitude with their their partner somewhere standing outside in the car park. Uh, that that as a human tragedy that doesn't happen now on on a scale we haven't seen uh, before, except in you know destructive wars like you know, the Eastern Front in the Second World War. So but so that is happening and, and we can't undo that. But the project as such is doomed to fail. And what is being repeated here over and over again and what uh, German lawyer Rainer Fulmich uh, with his committee is, is uh, preparing is a tribunal to call 
uh, all the politicians and all those who were somehow involved in this gigantic fraud to call them to to well to let them be responsible for what they did and to call them to justice. You mentioned the contender states, Russia and and China, yeah. and we're seeing now this insane escalation in Ukraine. Do you think, um, you know, as you said, maybe the political COVID project is is failing? Um, you know, maybe they try as a, as a diversion, or maybe, you know, I feel like we're in the 1920s, 1930s. Well, yeah. you you reference World War One scenario as well as the 1930s yeah. again. This rise of authoritarianism, economic collapse. Do you think that they could push for a war? The West could push for a war with Russia and China. Well, uh, however mad they may be, a war in the present. I mean, uh, the uh, Orwell's statement that that wars are no longer between states but against a population uh, could also be a bit reassuring because then you could say, well, we might as well win that war, you know, and and not let them. But uh, of course, it's still possible that simply out of uh, uh, an accident uh, in in a highly tense uh, situation, you might get a larger uh, conflict and. Once, once uh, one of the parties in a in a major central war is is losing, they will resort to their nuclear weapons, and 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 then of course we're all uh, we're all doomed. So in that sense, um, it's important to watch and to read uh, defense journals, and and see to what extent uh, top military figures are either taking the threat of nuclear annihilation serious or are uh, belittling it. And in the 1980s, for instance, you had such a situation in which uh, the Reagan team thought that if you just dug deep enough uh, a, a hole in the ground, uh, you might survive a nuclear attack, that sort of thing. And that led to the nuclear winter uh, report uh, to show you know that the earth would become a dead place if irrespective of the actual explosion so uh apart from mil- top military men uh, and the occasional woman becoming re- really crazy they 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 would understand that hard, uh, we should never do more than a proxy war ukraine is a very complex situation i actually wrote a book about uh, the new cold war in ukraine uh, in 2018, so I, I, I'm fa- a bit familiar with situation, and and it's a it's a failed state, and that in itself is a very dangerous situation because, well, it it would drift away from our topic if if we go into that, but it's possible that there would be a proxy war with uh, Ukrainians on the one side and. Um, the people in the Donbas, on the other hand, but it 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 can also. What I what I suspect is that already in the book that I wrote in two thousand eighteen, I, I I mentioned that there would be a resurgence of the well, not really pro-Russian uh, population, but the population that's oriented towards Russia in, in language, in culture, and everything, internet. Um, and uh, it's, it would seem now that people have become so desperate in Ukraine because of the ongoing impoverishment and, and the rapaciousness of the, of the oligarchs there, that they are willing to give uh, a pro-Russian 
politician a chance again. And that would then in the West be construed as a seizure of power by Russian agents and so on and so forth. That lead to the same serious situation. But, but the basic point is this. Elite, it's in the West. So class, the ruling class in the West and the governing class and so on can no longer govern through an equitable social contract with the population. They have to maintain themselves by politics of fear to really drive people with their backs against the wall. That can be environmental uh, disasters, that can be uh, a, a war situation, etc. But that's an objective given. What it will be depends not on you or me or even a genius who can foretell for these things, but on, on the objective strength of the different forces and some coincidence here and there. But the politics of fear is, is, uh, is a given. So the fight for democracy would always have to focus on, on discovering the origins of the politics of fear, uh, exposing the forms it takes, exposing the lies that are woven around all kinds of policies that actually aim for something completely different, basically for the subjection of, of uh, uh, all the people. And then try and aim for something beyond the current economic system that we have. But that's not so easy because don't forget that even in the days of uh, industrial socialism, the actual uh, ideas that were available prior to the taking of power were minimal. You know, there were very few book-length exposés of what a, society, a socialist society would look like. Uh, and now there's nothing, you know, there, uh, but there are a lot of activities, you know, I, I'm active here in Holland as well as a speaker on, um, in, in this anti-COVID measures movement. And every time I get somewhere, I'm amazed to see the level of preparation that people have already in terms of setting up alternative education uh, uh uh, schools uh, to, to have alternative food supply uh, chains uh, based on local farming, your own, do your own farming, that sort of thing. Now, that's not the same as having an alternative society ready, but it indicates and it works as a school to shape people's understanding of their own capacity to contribute meaningfully to society. And that at some point might become a, a critical factor in, in, uh, in social change. But inevitably, it will be different in different countries. Yeah, you kind of answered my, my final question of what do we do? And as you said, getting involved, uh, uh, and we're seeing an explosion in the homeschooling and the building of these parallel economies, parallel structures, yeah. which could lead to... Lead to you know, uh, a more positive future. Is there any final thought then you wish to leave us with? Well, as, as you said, I, I just gave it. And uh, uh, well, I, I think the most important thing is to that we keep our, our brains working. Uh, we, we get as much exposure of, of interesting ideas on all sides uh, as we can. And that people like yourself uh, keep interviewing as many people <laughs> you think have some ideas about where we should be going uh, as you can.
All right. I, I, thank you very much for it. And you, you are on Twitter. Um, I yeah. would encourage people to uh, find you there. Uh, is there is that the best place to follow you? And, and how can people best support your work or, or get your new book? Well, they should get the book <laughs> in all modesty. It, it's doing very well here in Holland and in Germany, where it was the first. Uh, and now I'm, uh, and it will come out in Polish at the end of this month and in Russian at the end of this month. And, and also when I'm now negotiating with a publisher in France. Um, yeah, my, my view is that if the whole COVID circus collapses and it will this year or next year at the latest, then the sort of book that I wrote will be very useful to answer the question why did it happen in the first place? And and that should be enlightening. You know, it's not an adventure story about uh, how this all came about, but it's a, it's a reconstruction, uh, yeah, by accident, almost written in the process uh, that it was imposed itself. But uh, no, I'm I, I was lucky with this book. You know, sometimes things fall in place just in a nice way that you feel. It's good, and it's also good that I'm out of academia because when I would have still been in academia, the the footnotes uh, section would have been twice as long, just to show that I really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Whereas now it was the emphasis was really on the account of what happened and then the necessary references. Yeah, there's a lot of censorship. Um, at, at university, and uh, also this could be a future warning to help us understand. So this, so we stop this in this in its tracks. If they try to pull something like this again, uh, again, um, yeah. as uh, for listeners, you, you know that I, I do not often say this about that often say this about my guests and their books but when i really mean it and uh, i do really mean that you have to get key's book uh, i received a free review copy from clarity press but still i went out and i, and I bought the book uh and so support please support great work like great work like this uh professor vanderpale uh thank you for being on geopolitics and empire thank you very much I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.